You can remain standing. We'll read God's word together. Exodus chapter 2. And then also want you to be in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read one verse out of Hebrews chapter 11 before we get to uh, Exodus chapter 2. Just shed some light uh, upon the truths that we're going to look at tonight. And so uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is where we'll start and then we'll be, uh, make our way over to Exodus chapter 2. So Hebrews chapter 11, is that where you're at? Okay, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23. Bible says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. And so that gives us some valuable insight into the text that we're going to read. First of all, it starts off that saying that what we're going to read about was done by faith. And because it was done by faith, they did not operate out of fear of the king's command. So let's go to Exodus chapter 2, and you can lose your place there in Hebrews 11. Exodus chapter 2, we're going to cover the first 10 verses of our chapter tonight. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 1. And there went a man out of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took him for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew. And she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. Moses means drawn out. And so because she took him up, drew him up out of the water, she calls his name Moses. The title of our message tonight is this, The Deliverance of the Deliverer. The Deliverance of the Deliverer. May God bless reading his word. You could be seated. In 1941, Adolf Hitler implemented a plan that was called the final solution. The final solution. It was a plan to murder every Jew within reach of German power, but not only within Europe, but really the final goal was all around the world. He saw the Jews as a major problem, a major threat. He hated them, despised them, and implemented this plan, the final solution that, of course, uh, led to what we now call the Holocaust. In this final solution plan, it included the construction of concentration camps, where Jews were subjected to forced labor. It included gas chambers, firing squads, and of course, Auschwitz. The final solution resulted in the murder of 90% of Polish Jews, two-thirds of Jews all throughout Europe, and the total death amount was over 6 million Jews, and that took place in the span of just about three or four years. Just a horrendous massacre. An atrocious crime like the Holocaust really makes you wonder, how did it possibly get to that point? How could, 
how could the German people just go along with Hitler's tactics to, to accomplish this genocide, this extermination of an entire people group? There's something inside of us that says it didn't just get there by itself. Well, it didn't. There was a carefully crafted strategy implemented over 10 years that led to this extermination. It began with the installation of the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. This aim was to educate. You ever heard that before? We need to educate people. That's the solution. That was Hitler's tactic. We need to educate people. We need to enlighten people as to the Jewish problem was his mindset. And so they tried to edu educate people with this Nazi message through, uh, through art, through music, through theater, through film, through books, radio, educational material, and of course, the press. They used movies and other media to paint the Jews as conspiracists who were trying to provoke war in Europe. They painted them as being, and we're talking about in their movies. I mean, I did some extensive study on this today that they, they portrayed Jews in their movies uh, to be subhuman, to be uh, people who uh, lived their lives for immorality and for money. And so they ostracized them through the media and through movies and through the arts to try to turn the people against the Jews. This effort began in the 1930s, 10 years before the Holocaust was really in full swing. They promoted, uh, through their propaganda, they promoted executive measures against the Jews. Legislation. They kept them from getting certain jobs, certainly government jobs. They kept them from making certain amounts of money. They used the media to push propaganda that mobilized the population into the streets that brought them to riot, to exact violence upon Jewish people in the streets. I mean, it was a carefully executed strategy to exterminate the Jewish people. And what we have in Exodus is really an ancient version of the Holocaust. What you have here is a carefully executed strategy to exterminate the Jews from Egypt. We saw last week in chapter one, how Pharaoh saw the Jews as a growing problem and out of fear that they were going to overtake the land and put him out of power. He decided to exact this strategy. And the first part of that strategy was to gather the Jewish people into ancient concentration camps and subject them to forced labor. They built cities for them, made brick and straw, and they had to put these things together. The taskmasters over them that beat them, whipped them, and flogged them as they were working. Like Hitler, he wanted to destroy them. So he ordered the midwives to kill the boys as they were delivering them from the women who were pregnant. When that didn't work, he mobilized the people told all the people, if you see a baby Hebrew boy, take that child and cast him into the Nile River. See, Pharaoh's strategy was threefold. And it was this, devalue gender was number one. What do you mean by that? Here's what he did. We see it clearly in chapter one. He oppressed and destroyed men and he used women to do it. We see in his second strategy to devalue marriage. His goal behind the death of these infants was to make it to where they could not grow up and marry the women and, and be able to have children. And so he, he, was, he was making it impossible for them to marry within their tribal people. He wanted the women to assimilate in with the Egyptians. He wanted to use the women and they were going to abuse the women. That's how it would have gone and destroyed the men. 
destroying marriage, and then this, devalue children. Kill them and throw them into the Nile upon birth. And so what we see is this, that Pharaoh's attempt to destroy Hebrew society was a wholesale attack on the family. A wholesale attack on the family. He understood this. Destroy the family, destroy society. If he could destroy the men, make it impossible for them to marry, make it impossible for them to have children, then he could wipe out the Hebrew society altogether. And what we see in society today is a similar strategy. A strategy to destroy the fabric of a society that has historically stood for biblical morality. That has historically aligned itself with the God of Israel. And what they have, what, what our society is doing today to destroy the fabric of our, our society is to attack the family. To attack the family in the very, in very similar ways to devalue gender, to devalue marriage, and to devalue children. We see it every day here in the United States of America. We still see the same tactics of implementing propaganda into music and movies and TV shows, the arts, the educational system to portray proponents of the Bible as conspiracy theorists. You ever heard that before? As bigots, you ever heard that before? Haters of women, as racists, as gun-toting crime lords. That doesn't happen in a few weeks. Come down here, get it back on. There we go. I mean, let's just think about it. You watch modern crime shows, and what I've noticed is a major uptick in storylines that plot ministers at churches and Christians in churches as whack jobs lurking in the darkness, carrying out the most heinous crimes imaginable. Why? It's a strategy. Understand, folks, it's not happening on its own. There's a reason behind it. Listen to this statement. Every attempt to revolutionize a society has a strategy, a strategy to target a specific group of people that does not fit within that revolution. Let me say that one more time. Every attempt to revolutionize a society, to flip it on its head, can I use these words? To fundamentally transform the country. Every attempt to revolutionize a society has a strategy to target a specific group of people that does not fit within that revolution. It played out in Egypt. It played out in Germany. And it's even playing out here in the United States of America. But although it played out that way in Egypt, what we see in Exodus chapter 2 is a family that did not live in fear of Pharaoh's plan. A family that chose, we're not going to, I mean, we read it in Hebrews chapter 11. They did not fear the king's command. They chose, we're not going to operate our day-to-day -day life out of fear of what may happen as a result of this strategy. We're going to live our day-to-day -day life based on what God has said. And that's what they did. And as a result, they went forward with God's plan and the great deliverer Moses was born. He was providentially preserved by God as a result of a family operating by faith. How was Moses delivered from Pharaoh's destructive strategy? Because let's think about it. With the way that things are going today in America, it's getting more and more difficult for families to be able to operate freely according to their faith in a society that has put the target out there. That if you don't agree with us on gender, you're the enemy. If you don't agree with us on women's rights, you're the enemy. If you don't agree with us on tolerance, then you're the enemy. We're not going to tolerate you if you don't tolerate at the level we want you to. As we are trying to grow up as Christians, as we're trying to raise families 
In a society like this, what are we to do? When it's stacked against us and it's stacked against God, how do we deliver future generations from society's destructive strategy? That's what we want to see from this text. I want to show you, first of all, in the face of Pharaoh's decree, there was a man who stuck with God's plan. If you look at verse 1, and it says, And there went a man out of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And so what you have here in verse number one is a marriage at a day and time when Pharaoh's in power and he's, he's put this strategy in place and it's in full force. What you see here is a man who says when it would be more convenient to not marry, when it's a threatened, when it's a threat for me to marry and to have children, I'm just going to go ahead and marry because that's what God said to do. That it was one man for one woman for one lifetime and these two shall become one flesh. And so we're just going to go ahead and obey what God has said to do. It points out very specifically that he was of the house of Levi and she was of the house of Levi. And that is cluing us back into this fact that it was vitally important to God's covenant with the children of Israel that they maintain their Hebrew identity, but not just their Hebrew identity, their tribal identity. And so a lot of times as they progressed uh, beyond that first generation that went into Egypt, they would marry within the family tribe so that you have the pure tribe of Levi, the pure tribe of Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh and, and all of those things. And so they cared about God's covenant. They cared about their history. They cared about their upbringing. And in the face of this decree, this married couple decided, let's go and have kids. They had a daughter. A daughter, we later find out her name is Miriam. And they had a son, a son by the name of Aaron. So not just one child, I imagine when, you know, cause they didn't have ultrasounds and blood tests and all those things. You waited until the baby was delivered and you found out what the baby was. I can't imagine in that situation, how, how nerve wracking it was leading up to that day of delivery. Is this going to be a boy or is this going to be a girl? How's this going to go? Well, the first child is delivered a girl. She's a girl. But then she gets pregnant again and they decide, let's continue doing what God said to do. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. God's covenant plan was then to multiply as the stars of the sky and the sand on the shore. And so they said, let's just keep doing what God told us to do. I know what the decree is, but let's obey God. And so they had another son, Aaron, and somehow they concealed him for three years. And then they went ahead and had another child. You can kind of see the repetition here. Why in Hebrews chapter 11, he would say, they feared not the king's commandment. <laughs> because they said, I know what would be easy. I know what would be convenient. I know what would be more simple, more safe, more secure. But we have a command from God and we have a covenant with God. And I know what the decree is, but this is a situation where we ought to obey God rather than man. So let's go in and get married and let's go ahead and have kids. And we're not going to put a limitation on this. We're just going to let God do what he wants to do. And so they conceive this third child. But I want you to notice in verse number two, that it says the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Hebrews tells us he was a proper child. The word goodly itself means pleasant, beautiful, handsome. Well, why didn't it say anything about that with Aaron or Miriam? Were they just ugly? No, every baby that's born, even if it's, I mean, I said this several times when my kids were born. I don't know why everybody says those are just the cutest things in the world when they're first delivered. It's kind of like they need some time. They need some time to round out into form and to not have the wrinkly skin and all that. And then they'll be beautiful. But what mother? So beautiful as soon as that baby is delivered. And so th this isn't something where she's saying he's so beautiful. But unfortunately, this text doesn't give us much detail as to what she meant by that. But fortunately, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 7, 
There was a faithful man by the name of Stephen who was preaching before his martyrdom. And he was going through Israel's history and he brings up this situation and he explains that they saw Moses was a proper child and they hid him and, and all of those things. But then what you find out is a little bit later in his message and what we're going to see in the next section of chapter two is that a time came when Moses was a younger man where he went out to visit his people. And as he went to visit his people, he saw an Egyptian afflicting one of his brethren and he comes to his brother's defense and he kills that Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And what you notice from Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7 is he says this, that Moses did so supposing that his brethren would see that God by his hand would deliver them. What that seems to suggest to us is we don't really know how and it doesn't really explain why, but from the time that Moses was a younger person, a younger man, he came to understand what God's destiny for him was. And it may just be, and I can't, I can't be dogmatic about this, but it seems to suggest that when she says this is a good child, a proper child, she's saying he is no ordinary child. He's an extraordinary child, that God is going to use him in an extraordinary way, and we don't know what all it entails, but evidently they, they potentially had seen uh, some, had some revelation from God or something like that, that he was going to be Israel's deliverer, because Stephen tells us that's why Moses went to fight off this Egyptian, hoping they would see God's going to deliver us by Moses' hand. And so what this tells us is she saw something in him that others could not. And she had to protect him. It says that she hid him three months. When you look up the word hid, it means to, to treasure, to conceal. It means she valued this child's life to the point where she was willing to hide him there for three months. And so what we're talking about here is that by faith, in spite of the king's decree, a man and a woman decided, let's obey God, we'll get married, we'll have kids, and we'll cherish these children. And God rewarded them with a deliverer. Well, three months passed, and that baby got past the sleeping stage. And he got his lungs, and he started crying. And he started making a ton of racket and cooing and all these things. And it says it came to the point, verse 3, where she could not longer hide him. It was impossible. We can't hide this little guy. He just, he won't stop running his mouth. <laughs> and so what she does is she, it says that she takes an ark. This is the same word translated the ark in Noah's day. The only other time this word is used in scripture and it says that she daubed it with slime and with pitch, which is the same way that Moses or Noah, excuse me, made his ark. And so you see this redemption, redemptive flow that would have stuck out in the eyes of the first readers of this text, where they would tie this ark back to another ark where Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and God spared him and his family because of their faith. Hebrews also talks about Noah, that it was by faith that he built the ark. And so right here, by faith, we have another ark being built for another deliverer that's being delivered here. And so she puts together this ark. She lays the kid in the basket. She sets it by the flags of the, uh, that were in the river, the flags. You know, think of when you go to a, a lake and you see the big stalks with the corn dog looking thing on top. That's kind of what it's talking about. And so she goes and lays him there and lets him float down kind of in safety that would have been away from the crocodiles. I mean, this isn't necessarily the safest thing, but she understands this. If this is God's man, he'll do a better job protecting this child than I'll ever do on my own. And so she trusts God. She puts him in this little ark and she lets him on down. She trusts him into the protection of God. Sends Miriam, his sister, most people say probably between 8 and 12 years old at this point. And she begins following him from afar off, make, seeing what's going to happen to him. And what happens is that baby floats by and Pharaoh's daughter had come out to wash at the river and had some 
maidservants with her and she's down in the river and they're walking by the river's bank and as she's washing there, she looks down and she sees this little basket floating down the river. She's thinking, what is this? Hey, go get that. <laughs> so a maid goes over, she gets the basket and it says that she opens it up and it's a, it's a child. <laughs> Who would put a child in a basket and float it down the river? And then she says, it's one of the Hebrews children. She knew what was supposed to be done with Hebrews children. But it says the babe wept. It's a good thing it wasn't Pharaoh's son. Because when my son fell off the platform and mama was rushing over there to him and I was sitting here like, get up. <laughs> That's how men handle it. But it says that she heard him cry and she had compassion on him. She had pity on him. Her heart went out to him and she said, I can't just throw him back in the river. I've got to I keep this little boy. I've got to take care of him. And, and right about that time, here comes Miriam running up there and says, do you want me to go find a, a, a woman of the Hebrews who can nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, yeah, go for it. And she knew exactly who to go to. Goes to that baby's mama and says, you're never going to believe this. Moses, or he didn't have a name at this time. I don't know, maybe he had a Hebrew name. The baby was floating down there and he came to Pharaoh's daughter. And I imagine his mom, her name's Jochebed, is not Pharaoh's daughter anywhere but there. And she's like, no, 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 it's fine. No, it's not fine. She's going to get, no, no, mom. <laughs> you know, eight, nine, 10 year old. She wants me to get a Hebrew nurse. And I'm taking you. So she brings her mom over to Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh's daughter has that little baby in her arms and says, here, I want you to take this baby. I want you to nurse this baby. Now at that time, they nursed the babies for about three to four years at that time. We can't imagine that today, but that's what they did. And so she's going to get to spend the first three to four years of her son's life with him, safe, secured. Why? Because he's Pharaoh's grandson now. And to make it even better, Pharaoh's daughter says, and I'll pay you your wages. <laughs> How would you like to get paid to raise your own kids? That'd sure be awesome, right? It pays to be a mom, right? <laughs> well, it paid her to be a mom. What you see is this. God honored the faith of this family by protecting that child and putting him in the place where he would be the most secure until God could use him for the purpose for which God had given that child life. You see God doing a great work here to preserve this child's life. And by faith, in the face of threat, in the face of death, the great deliverer of Israel was delivered himself. This was no ordinary child. This was a child who would grow up in Pharaoh's house, but he would later be drawn out. His name is Moses. That's what she calls him after she weans him. She brings him back to Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh calls him Moshe, which means drawn out. But while he was drawn out of this river, later he's going to be drawn out into a wilderness where he's going to see a burning bush and God's going to call him to deliver his people out of Egypt. But I want to point out this, that in this text, we see the value of both men and women in a society. See, men were so valuable to the Hebrew society that Pharaoh knew to destroy this society, I've got to destroy these men. That's how valuable the men were. He didn't attack the women. He attacked the men. He knew they were vitally important to sustaining this society. And yet at the same time, women are so valuable that they take center stage in God's providence in this narrative. That what you have here is, is that in Moses' early life, God used women to save Israel just as much as he would use Moses to save Israel later. The Hebrew midwives, 
Moses' mother, Moses' sister, Pharaoh's daughter. God establishes the equal value of both men and women in a society. They are both fundamentally essential for society to work the way they were designed and created to work. We need both men and women for their uniquely complementary personalities, their roles, and their strengths. And we cannot add value to one by taking value away from the other, for in devaluing either one, we actually serve to hurt the other. When men and, uh, and women operate together in society, using their strengths to make up for each other's weaknesses, you have a perfect complementary picture of how God designed society to work. That's what we see here. How was Moses delivered from this Egyptian strategy? How did Moses' parents respond to Pharaoh's attempt to destroy the fabric of their society. What we see is this simple truth that Moses was delivered from Pharaoh's strategy by a family who chose to operate by faith, a family that operated by faith. Modern society seeks to destroy a Christian society by attacking the family. It starts with the most fundamental form of identity, and that is your God-given gender. It began with the devaluing of traditional womanhood. The idea that women are too strong and too powerful to be reduced to household service and cooking and cleaning and, and raising kids. It was a movement to devalue those roles as though they were classless as though they were ignoble, as though they, they were secondary and insignificant. The idea is that women have so much more to offer society than spending all day at home with the kids. Understand the, the devaluing and the wide swath of gender identity that we have today is rooted in the devaluation of traditional womanhood. It began with a paradigm shift that fulfilling those roles made women second-class citizens. That was the propaganda, if I can put it that way. But let me also say this, that we should not be foolish to ignore the fact that what sparked the devaluing of traditional womanhood was unfortunately oppressive men who treated their wives as though they were doormats, treated them as though they were servants, treated them as though they were second-class citizens. And so because there were men who were supposed to have a, a position and a role of influence and servant leadership within their home, these men used that position to abuse and oppress their wives, their spouse, their children. And as a result, women felt inferior. They felt like second-class citizens. They felt like servants of rough and gruff, grumpy old men. And because of that, we said the way we got to rectify this is to devalue manhood. If they're going to attack women, we've got to attack the men. This is evidenced by terminology, some that I had never heard of, but looked up like the manosphere. Anybody ever heard of the manosphere? Okay, good. I'm not the only one that was oblivious to this. The manosphere is what they refer to when I say they, I would be talking about opponents of traditional manhood. They would refer to the manosphere as a series of websites that promote uh, toxic masculinity. And to that, I would say there's some toxic masculinity out there. I just mentioned a moment ago that what sparked this was men being oppressive to their wives. And so that is out there. And I realize that, but we've got labels for it now. Terminology that, that creates a negative aura around not just them, but all men to where now women are suspect of all men being the way that somebody has treated them in their past. The manosphere, mansplaining. <laughs> That's a word that means to talk down to a woman from a man's point of view, okay? 
So you got mansplaining, misogyny, of course, is a hot button uh, word. And then also just the idea of toxic masculinity. Uh, Listen, I understand that there are some men that are horrible men. There are some women that are horrible women. (laughs) It goes on both sides. Why? Because we're sinners. We're fallen. We're all messed up. But just like there is a call for white people to be less white, there's been a call for men to be less men. And so then what you end up with is a society where you've got grown men in their 30s and 40s in their parents' basement watching video games or playing video games and watching movies all day long instead of working while they're mooching off their parents. Why? Because we've so devalued men that they feel no significance, no worth, and they say, you know what? If if, if I'm not going to be valued, then I might as well just go and be who they say I am. And so men go and do it. On TV shows, dads are made to look like idiots. I remember my dad telling me this back in the 90s with Full House and uh, Danny Tanner always being made to look like a moron and Home Improvement and Tim Allen always being made to look like a moron that they were making dads look stupid. And my dad hated that. Why? Because my dad had the perception to see where we were going to end up in 2023. An emasculated culture kids movies. It's no longer men saving women. It's women saving themselves. I grew up watching all the old Disney movies, Peter Pan. Well, they came out with a live action remake called Peter Pan and Wendy. So I added Wendy's name to it. I don't have a problem with that. So we're watching this and it's pretty nostalgic and they've got a lot of the old scenes are carried over into live action now and it was pretty awesome. And the time comes when it's time for Wendy to walk the plank on Hook's ship and she's standing there on the edge and she jumps off and as she jumps off, there's no splash and Hook is wondering why was there no splash and he's confused. I leaned over to my daughter, Jenna, and I said, you remember what happens? She goes, Peter saves her. That's what we're expecting. And then all of a sudden, Wendy flies up all by herself. Didn't need anybody to save her. Didn't need no, I mean, you're talking about frozen, tangled. The men don't need to save the women anymore. And listen, I understand that that we're designed to work in a complementary fashion, as I already mentioned, and both of us have equal value. But what you see is a complete reversal of roles that has a strategy behind it to teach women men are useless in your life. You don't need to be saved. Hey, listen, what that's doing is it's taking away from men their God-given passion to protect life, to protect women, to protect children. And in these little strategies that they start showing to our kids from the time they're a little child, by the time they grow up, there are no men willing to step in front of a bus to save their children. There are, no, there are not as many men willing to go to war and to fight for the freedoms that we have in America. There aren't men wanting to stand up in the political world for morality and for basic human rights, like the right for an unborn child to live. There's not enough men in society. And so we've laid down, we've rolled over. There aren't enough dads stepping up in their children's lives and, and, and saying, saying, God made you a boy. You don't need to be confused about that. Why? Because there is a strategy that says let's devalue gender. And here's what, here's what we've ended up with, folks. Men screaming at the sins of women. Women screaming at the sins of men. And the sins of the other gender being put up on kids' shows and TV screens and in grocery stores and in books. And you have all this being set up to where then you got kids who feel bad about being a boy because men are so bad. And you have girls who feel bad about being a girl because girls are so bad. And so what happens is these kids grow up confused and they end up in their teen years and they say, I don't want to be either one. And so I'm gender fluid. I'm non-binary. I'm queer. And so then we've got all these different gender labels that we have to add in because we have devalued gender to the floor. 
We said it doesn't matter. We said traditional manhood is evil. Traditional womanhood is evil. Well, what are you left with? Confusion. Absolute confusion. And the results, folks, are devastating. Teen suicide is as high as it's ever been. And as I was talking with the folks over at, at Antelope Recovery, and I understand there are tons of different ways to deal with mental health and not everything we would agree with. We believe Jesus Christ can change the heart and we believe Jesus Christ can change the mind. But I'm so thankful that there's at least somebody putting forth an effort to try to help kids deal with gender confusion. And I'm thankful that they had the willingness to reach out to a church and just say, there are some who want clarity on gender and they They'd like to have it from a biblical perspective. And I'm thankful that here in Boulder, there's a company like that that's willing to set it aside and said, here's what we need to do. Value life. Value life. Give these kids some hope. But they said that besides drugs, the number one highest case that they deal with on a day-to-day basis is gender confusion. And the reason why is because there's a strategy at work today to tear down the fabric of society as God designed it to work. And a major part of that is destroying gender. But marriage has also been immensely devalued today. Marriage or relationships is about nothing more than the physical relationship anymore. Timothy Keller just passed away this last week. He said this, the physical relationship apart from marriage becomes a product we consume if we find someone attractive enough in quality and low enough in price. If the quality goes down or the cost goes up, we can just walk away because there is no covenant. What we have done in the process of devaluing marriage is devaluing human life and using people as a product to get the high, the feel, the pleasure that I want out of it. And we see people as nothing better than a product, something to be consumed. In other words, a spouse is someone you love. A partner, as we call it today, is someone you use. It's someone you want to live with. It's someone you want to have a relationship with. It's someone you want to share your finances with. It's somebody that you want to share some experiences with. But it's not someone you love enough to put the ring on the finger and say, I am yours forever. We've given up on that in America. What we've done is because the divorce rate has now gotten so high, we just said there's no point. Why go through that heartache? Why go through that pain? And so let's just keep it loose. Let's just make it, and let's just make it free living. And, and then what, what that spirals downward into is into open relationships where you can be with the person that you live with one time and you can be with someone else the next day and someone else the next day. And you, you just got all kinds of loose, immoral living that breaks hearts, destroys trust, and ruins lives. It has a toll emotionally and psychologically on people. And here's what I find to be sad on top of all this is that those who fight the strongest and the loudest for gay marriage are often people who could care less about traditional marriage. They'll live with someone for 10, 20 years and never marry It shows there's no value of marriage there. And yet they'll scream at the top of their lungs, let them marry. It's sad. It is. And perhaps the saddest of all is this, the way that children have been devalued in society. I'm not even going to deal with the matter of abortion. And I dealt with that last week with him wanting to throw the kids into the Nile and killing them as they were delivered. Just atrocious. What I'm talking about tonight is that raising children has been reduced to an obstacle. Children stand in the way of my career. Children stand in the way of my education. 
Children stand in the way of my relationship. And now in society, it's absolutely bonkers to imagine having kids in your 20s. I remember going to work and I asked this kid, how old do you think I am? And he's like, like 40 something. I was like, what would, I was like, what would make you think I'm 40? He's like, you got three kids. I'm like, oh, that's the standard now that before you're gonna have three kids, you gotta be in your late thirties or early forties. That's where we're at as a society today. What we've said is, is get your career going first, get financially stable first, make sure your situation is conducive to having kids. Let me just say this, having children is never convenient, but it's a tremendous blessing. Children are still an heritage of the Lord, as the Bible says several times. But now instead of valuing children enough to invest time energy and life into them. When parents finally have their kids in their thirties after maternity leave, they drop their kids off at daycare for eight hours a day for the first three years. And then they end up going to school. And what you, what you realize is this, that from the time that they are a month old until the time they are graduated and leaving your house, you've had them for a mere couple of hours a night. Somebody else has had them. Somebody with a strategy, somebody with an ideology, somebody who's been brought up in a world that hates God, a world that hates the Bible, a world that spits upon Jesus Christ. Pastor Ryan Thompson said this, the public education system has moved from its purpose of practical education to ideological indoctrination. See, it's in school where our kids learn how to behave. It's in school where they learn how to interact socially instead of with their parents, their brothers and sisters. It's in school where they learn about biology and anatomy and gender and sex. It's in school where they learn about history and art and music. But our modern education system is no longer about biology. It's about ideology. And we've seen a dramatic shift in just a couple of years. We've thrown biology out the window and chaos and confusion has been created in the lives of our young people. It's a shame. There's a strategy in place and it's destroying future generations. And as Christians, we can live in fear and cave to society's plan, or we can live by faith and trust God's plan. And what's at stake here is this truth, that future generations are delivered from society's destruction by families who will operate by faith. Future generations are preserved They're delivered from society's destructive strategy by families who will operate not by fear, but by faith. And so people of faith are going to embrace their God-given gender. Men, it's okay to be a man. It's not wrong. I feel sad I have to say that to men. You weren't born wrong because you're a man. You're not an accident because you're a man. You're not toxic because you're a man. It's okay to be a real man. But understand this, by real man, I'm not talking about a rough, gruff manimal who walks around and talks like a caveman. I'm not saying you got to be a hunter or a fisher or a camper, or you got to be able to work on cars. You got to be able to work with your hands. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, it's okay to be a man. I'm talking about embracing your God-given, God-ordained role from the creation of the world to be a servant leader in your home. Not to lord your power and influence to treat your children and your wife like dirt, but to serve the best interests of your wife and your children instead of serving your own best interests. That is Bible manhood. Talking about men who are 
willing to influence and invest in their children, who don't yell and scream at their kids, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm talking about men who love their wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I'm talking about men who care about the status of their family and about the status of their church and the status of their country. I'm talking about men who aren't lazy, men who aren't just sitting by letting the world go, but men who are trying to influence people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, people who embrace their biblical manhood that God has given them. Stand in your identity, men. There's no no need to be scared of being a man. Don't let society tell you you shouldn't be a leader in your home. But don't go off and be an oppressive leader in your home. Be gracious. Be kind. Just like Jesus has been to you. Ladies, There's not a thing wrong with being a woman. It's okay to cry. (laughs) It's okay to lay on your husband's shoulder and to let him put his arm around you and to give you a squeeze so as to say, this is my wife and I'm going to protect her with my life. That's not toxic. It's godly. Understand this, before you let anybody devalue your gender as a woman, God often relates himself to his children as a mother. Paul related himself to the Thessalonians as a nursing mother cherished their children. Don't let anybody tell you that being a stay-at-home mom is second class. Don't let anybody tell you that you have more power than that. Because what I'll tell you is this, the effect you'll have and the influence you'll have on your children and on your grandchildren will far outlast whatever influence you have at a cubicle behind a desk. It'll last way longer than being a bank teller. Hey, listen, Having your career, it'll get you all the money. It'll get you all the things that you want. And it'll have all, you'll have all those material things, the house, the car, the TV, all that stuff. But when you die, it's all gone. And your children will go on to live their lives. And they'll have kids who will have kids who will have kids. And your legacy as a mother will last far beyond whatever a career or an education could give you. You tell me which one is a more worthy investment. Yeah. So let's embrace who God's made us to be. I realize I'm the only one with kids in here right now that are young in my home. So I would preach to myself for a minute here, but there are some who maybe hope to be parents one day. Don't let society shape the identity of your children. You do that. For every letter I get, And for every college student on the hill that wants to yell at me for having my kids out going, hanging doors with me, I just want to say this. What gives you the right to teach my kids more than me? You don't love them. Those teachers don't love them like you love them. It's my my God-given responsibility who has placed these wonderful children in my hands for them to not have to look to their friends to figure out if they're a boy or a girl. It's to look to their dad. It's to look to their mom to tell them you are who God made you to be and you are precious in sight just the way you are. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. That's my job. That's not toxic. That's responsibility. You know what's irresponsible? Letting other people raise your children. That is irresponsible. And people of faith are going to embrace wholeheartedly what their identity is and what the identity of their children is. Not as defined by society, but as defined by God. Christians, people of faith, ought to be the ones who lift up God's design for marriage. 
we ought to value marriage on the level that God does. And that is this. After giving a lengthy discussion about marriage, the Apostle Paul said this. This is a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The church is considered a bride. Christ is considered the groom. And God's desire is that your marriage, your relationship would reflect his love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. That's what marriage is supposed to be. He, he starts off that whole discussion, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Having a holy, reverent respect of God, submit yourselves to each other. See, unfortunately, even in the ranks of Christianity, cohabitating is the common way of doing it now. But what we do is we devalue the other person. Why? Because we're not seeing them as worthy of a lifelong commitment. And thus, what it really sets up is, I like having you around, but I want to make sure if I don't, I've got an out. <laughs> That's sad. I shouldn't even snicker at that. It's sad. But people of faith are going to say, I know what society says. I know what they think is right. I know what the threat is against the family. But like Amram and Jochebed, I'm just going to go ahead and do what God said. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Jesus said, what God had joined together, let not man put asunder. And I'm going to stick to marriage. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to have children. <laughs> yeah. Having children is a command of God. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. We ought not look cross at people that got 12 kids. <laughs> so we have the 10. Whoa. 12? <laughs> 12. <laughs> They're not disobeying God by that. I'd be far more concerned by people who say, I'm never having kids. Because that's direct disobedience to God. I'm not telling what you have to do. And sometimes God doesn't allow people to have kids. I'm just trying to speak from, from God's word. And what God has said is the way that future generations are preserved is families who will operate by faith. Families who will lift up biblical gender. People who will lift up biblical marriage. Families who will lift up biblical child raising. That's how a society is preserved and delivered from society's destructive strategies is by people who operate by faith. As society is crumbling all around us, many people would say it's not, but we see where it's at. Society is crumbling around us, and what it is is a constant reminder of this. This place is broken. This place is messed up. And the cry out of our hearts is this, we need to be delivered. That's going to be the cry of Israel at the end of chapter 2. God hears their cry. And he sends Moses. But about 1,500 years later, another decree is going to be issued by another wicked king. A king named Herod. Who's going to order the massacre of all males born in the city of Bethlehem. But there was a couple who got married by faith. Joseph and Mary. And Mary conceived a child by the Holy Ghost and gave birth to that child. And they called his name Jesus. You know what Jesus means? Jehovah saves. Yeshua the Old, the Old Testament Hebrew name is Joshua. That's what Jesus means in Greek. God saves. And this child, by faith at the command of God, was taken down to Egypt, of all places, and hid there for three years. And Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 tells us, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And the direct fulfillment was Israel, 
but the ultimate fulfillment was Jesus. And because Jesus came and suffered affliction, because Jesus came when he saw our condition and he wept over us and he pitied over us and he had compassion over us, he came and he paid the price for our sin to deliver us from its binding force and to provide us the hope of salvation, eternal life, and deliverance from this crumbling society. Our hope is Jesus, folks. Our hope is not Donald Trump. Our hope is not Ron DeSantis. You know what our hope is as a country? Jesus Christ. How does Jesus get to them? You and me. Operating by faith. Standing our biblical ground in a society that hates God in a way that is gracious, kind, and merciful and wins people to Jesus Christ and he'll change the politics and he'll change the gender and he'll change the orientation and he'll change the addict and he'll free the mind and he'll free those chained in darkness. He is our hope. He is the ultimate deliverer. So let's trust in him and do what he said and continue to operate by faith and take the gospel to the city he's called us to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its instruction. Thank you for its help. God, I ask you to help us to be perceptive of the society around us to see the strategies and to protect our children, to protect our marriages, to protect our purity, to protect our faith. Help us, Father, to be the light that you've called us to be in this city and to share the hope of the gospel in our deliverer, Jesus Christ. And may you help us to be the ones who champion biblical gender and biblical marriage, and biblical child raising, that we might preserve a future generation from the strategy of destruction. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.